Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Welcome to Breaking News. I'm Matt Ziegler, joined as always by Jack Forehand and Ben Hunt. Say hello, kids. Good hello, to be kids. back. <laughs> All right, today we've got the zeitgeist, and we're going to dive into the few facts and many fictions in the evolving EV narrative. We've got a tweet of the week on inflation and how, I tell you, there's, there's, there's more brands of inflation than children's breakfast cereals right now. Oh, so how cool. does one choose? That's a good line, yeah. How does one choose their favorite captain? Uh, Jack, you've got a dumb question, I believe, on if Vivek has achieved strategic political perfection. Can't wait for that. Uh, we're punning mailbag this week, uh, and we're doing that for a good reason, because the discussion points are just, we're snowballing right now in all the best ways. I've got a cultish corner. I want to talk a little bit, not so much about the Bitcoin ETFs, but I want to talk about hot topic. And I mean the store hot topic, not Bitcoin as a hot topic, but I think they're related. Ben, you're going to help me pull this apart. Nice. But first, big story. Ben, I think you broke the internet again. The intellectual rot of the industrial necessary university is live on Epsilon Theory. Everybody go check it out. Uh, you can reach out to us. If you can't read it, be behind the paywall, send a, a PDF of this. It, this is an important piece. I want, Jack, somehow you need to get me the the Funk Flex bomb sound so I can make that noise on these I can, things, I can do it. I'll look into okay. it. Insert that wherever you can. But Ben, I want to start here because... So much of the point of this podcast and YouTube channel is to talk about how to grapple with these really huge and deep ideas in the Epsilon Theory community, but man, they apply broadly. Can you, can you start us off with just yay, yay college <laughs> and college or elite institutions TM? What's the yay and TM mean? Because man, if people understand this, they better understand this narrative. Well, I appreciate that. So yeah, I, I it's a feature or a bug. I'm still not sure which, but in the 11 years been writing Epsilon Theory, come up with our own lingo for things. And part of that lingo, or I, I think an effective part of that lingo, has been to use what we call the yay construction. Like, yay capitalism with an exclamation mark and quotation marks around. Or, and by that we mean it's cheering on the, the, the cartoon of capitalism to mask uh, what often is a perversion of capitalism. Or, yay, patriotism. Again, patriotism being a really good, important thing, but cheering on a cartoon version of it, again, often to mask something that isn't patriotic at all. 
it's it's our language for trying to encapsulate big concepts around thinking about narratives. So the yay construction, yay college, yay Harvard, we'll talk about that today. These are narrative constructions. They're outright narrative constructions. They are the use of words to promote cartoon version of something. But then we have this other linguistic kind of word approach where we say something like Bitcoin and then put the, the trademark side next to it. In other words, that it's not really Bitcoin, but it's a trademarked fake Bitcoin, basically. Harvard TM, which we'll talk about here in a second. Um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, TM, meaning that these are, they're not the, it's not the narrative component that would be yay Harvard or yay DEI, but these are the actual institutional constructions, the actual real world constructions of that cartoon of the self enriching or self-empowering the perversions of the original idea. So that, that's what we mean by the two. And, and the most famously, famously, I mean, um, most popularly, we've talked about gay college that, you know, everybody's for college. Who's not against college, but it's that, that cartoon version of college is used for, uh, institutions and institutional constructions to be money grubbing and power grubbing and all sorts of grubbing and the grubbingness that's the TM part. That's the TM part. Most popularly, we talked about Bitcoin TM as the wall street version of Bitcoin designed to, of course, make more money for wall street at the cost of the original goals and virtues of Bitcoin itself. So thanks for asking Matt, but that's what we mean when we say, yay, something that's the narrative construction. And then when we say something TM, that's the real word, real world perversion of something. It reminds me too, of like, it's, you have Disney and like the Mickey mouse cartoons and the fandom and all the things. And you have, Disney, the reality of like going to Blockbuster and renting Beauty and the Beast for the 400th time or something like that. And it's these two layers, they're so important to understand when we look at bigger cultural or societal narratives like this. Uh, to your point, Matt, once you start looking for yay something, you'll see it everywhere. And once absolutely. you start looking for the TM version of something, the more than slightly off fake version of something that's being used to make money or grab power. You'll see that everywhere too. So to, to use a real world example of this, you know, unfortunately in high school, I was told by my guidance counselor that I am not Harvard material, but <laughs> it, it, it turns out that I actually could have been Harvard material, uh, based on what's going on now. Um, yep. so maybe you could talk a little bit about this Harvard extension school and what this is. Wait, I have to, I have to say this. You just narrowly missed the boat. Because I was also not Harvard material. 
but I was Hartford material. And if they say it, <laughs> just at the right volume in a noisy bar, once in a while. It's the same thing, right? Same thing. Right. So the, the, the Harvard Extension School is a great example of what I mean by Harvard TM. So the Harvard Extension School is a money-making operation. That's why it exists, is to make lots of money for Harvard University by offering Harvard TM certificates, not diplomas, but certificates, and Harvard TM programs that can be used for maybe for college or graduate credit at a, a, a real university program. You can't use them at Harvard. Harvard will not accept any academic credits that you get from the Harvard Extension School. They won't accept it at Harvard itself. It, which gives you some example, some idea of the, the mendacity, the scam that is Harvard Extension School. It yeah. only exists for money, right? Is that the? Well, the, the yay part of this is yay community college, yay access. Right? Because, of course, you as your university, you want to provide resources and um, classes to your local community. Right. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a good, important virtue embedded within the extension school. And back in the day, that's what the extension school was. They would give local classes for anyone in Cambridge and Boston who wanted to come in and take a, take a course on something. And I think there's a lot to that. They didn't charge a lot of money. You got a little certificate. It wasn't like you're going to be going using these, like, say, for college credit necessarily, but it was like, uh, um, you know, like you're in high school and your, your high school doesn't offer a course in whatever pottery. And so you go to the local college or community college and you take a course. Great. Fantastic. Love it. But then the internet came along. Then there became the ability to have online courses. And so to offer a Harvard course, Harvard teachers to the world. Now, that's not going to work if you have to be admitted to Harvard. But so you have the Harvard Extension School, which has no admission. No, there are no admission criteria. If you can pay money, and it costs a lot of money. We'll talk about that in a second. You can take courses from the Harvard Extension School, and you can get a graduate certificate. Now, these words are very important. It's graduate because it's not part of any undergraduate program. It's a certificate because it, it means nothing. It is a piece of paper. By the way, when I was at Harvard for grad school, I developed and ran a certificate program for the College of Arts and Sciences and then for the, 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 the education school. I, I 
I did this. I know what this shit is like. I, I, I started this up. It was a, what was the topic? A money making operation. Leadership. Leadership, Jack. Because our market, our market were not students. We're not young people. Our market was the same market as the Harvard Business School, who really pioneered these sort of certificate programs for CEOs and corporations to pay a lot of money. Our target was uh, CEOs and C-level executives in Southeast Asia. Because the farther away you get geographically from Harvard, the bigger its reputation is, and the more value that having a certificate of leadership from the Harvard Ed School is for a CEO who wants to put it up on his wall. So it was just a money-making operation, just like, by the way, Klaus Schwab, who I knew in the you know, when I was doing this in the late 80s, just like Klaus Schwab was doing with his executive education program. That he, then I remember when he renamed it the World Economic Forum. I, I remember when he did that. It used to be, I was forgetting, it's like the European Economic Summit or something like that. And he changed the name to the World Economic Forum, jacked up the prices because it was all about money, all from the start. It's, it's, it's only about money. And that's what Harvard's done with the Harvard Education School, which has now expanded dramatically not to target CEOs, you know, who want a certificate to put on their wall, but to target <laughs> poor people, young people, people who can't or have to borrow to afford a graduate certificate from the ed school. An ed school certificate, a graduate certificate, costs $13,000 for four online classes. Four online classes is going to cost you $13,000. $13, so you can have a piece of paper that says Harvard Extension School on it. Got the Harvard name. It's an official thing. It's an official thing. And it means nothing. It means nothing. Um... You can get your certificate in social justice. You can get your extension certificate in diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. I, you can get your, your certificate in museum studies. And I give a lot of examples in the paper because it just makes me so darn angry. <laughs> right? But this is a perfect example of Harvard TM. The original justification is yay access, yay community outreach. And it's just a pure money grubbing, awful thing. You got me started on this. I have to say one more thing. You can't get financial aid for this. Right? You, you can't get a student loan for this from the government, from the state. There, of course, there's no financial aid from Harvard. That's the whole point, is to get cash on the money. You, you can get a private student loan, but you can't get it for this course. Right? There's a loophole with, with private student loans where the interest rate is a lot higher than you'd get from their federal student loans. 
that you can get a loan for a course that is preparatory for a real graduate program. In other words, you can't even get a, a, a high interest rate loan for this graduate certificate. You have to apply and say, well, I'm going to, I'm using this graduate certificate as preparation for a real scholastic program that I want to take in the future. Hey, it's, it is so mind boggling and yet it's so prevalent and it's growing all the time. And it's just, a, it's just, it's just awful. It's just awful. But those are, sorry, you got me wound up, but those are great examples of yay, Harvard and Harvard TM. You're reminding me of this, this wild story from a, a, a dear friend of mine who was a, originally a Madison Avenue, like ad guy and their team did a lot of stuff on like sports stuff, which is another great example of an industry where you, you take something big and then you sell it to a lot of people who don't always have the most money. You have certain right. ticket, they be, do you do this? Right. And so, uh, probably not long after you were setting that up, their entire business line went from almost like exclusive, like sports and entertainment focus to they get, they got hired by all like the, I don't want to call them like the second tier business schools, but a lot of the other schools all hired them to develop their executive programs. That's the way and I, I don't think I understood that connection until I read this paper. Like these were just crazy war stories. He told me about his time going through this transition, but it makes so much sense now how that the perversity of that marketing just like creeps into the system. And it's just, so maybe this will be interesting to people, but uh, so Harvard, the university has this budgeting philosophy that they all know. And the phrase is every tub on its own bottom. And what that means is that each of the individual schools within the Harvard university system is responsible for its own revenues. There's no revenue sharing. This isn't, this isn't the NFL, right? Where you're sharing a big pool of money. It's every tub on its own bottom. This is the Premier League sociology. You're getting relegated unless you perform. That, that, that's hey. basically right. So, well, but that's exactly it. So in the kind of the pecking order of who can make money, the Harvard School of Education is at the very bottom, the very bottom, right? And Harvard Business School is up here at the very top. So my idea was, I can hire Harvard Business School professors. I can get a certificate program from the Harvard Ed School. I can market it as a Harvard University thing, which it is. And I can get CEOs to come over and spend five days at Harvard. We'll have a couple of the business school professors come over and give them, you know, a lecture. Right. They'll stay at the Ritz back when that meant something in Boston. They'll, you know, they can, you know, we'll take them out to really good dinners. And at the end, somebody at the ed school will proudly hand them their graduate certificate. And, you know, the ed school ate it up. Sure. And coming from the ed school, from the bottom to your point, like, like this was like a great revenue idea in just the pure marketing narrative sense. You want to know what happened? Please, I can't wait to hear what way this went horribly awry. Well, it went, it went horribly awry because the, the Harvard Business School was trying to set up a, their, an offshoot program in Indonesia. 
And I had gone on a brief tour of Jakarta and Bangkok and Hong Kong to meet with the alumni of the School of Education Leadership Conference, right? Because they were having alumni meetings and all like this. And I, I made the, the critical mistake of reaching out to this biz school professor who was trying to set up their Indonesia, Jakarta, um, you know, business school. And so he started sounding the alarms. It got back to the business school. They took it to the president's office, right? So they called in the dean of the ed school. There's the dean of the business school. And they said, we, this is awful. You know, you're, 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 you're pouring in on our territory. And the, the ed school said, what do you, what do you mean? We can, we can teach you courses in education. And if your faculty wants to come over and give talks and we're paying them, you know, I was paying them five grand for, for an hour, right. To, you know, talk to these CEOs about something. And I, I mean, this is, I, I mean, this is, this is Larry Summers. This is, this is the whole shtick. Sh sh they come into the office and they have these meetings. And so finally the business schools says, I tell you what, we will pay you the ed school. How much are you making from this? And they gave him the number and they said, all right, we'll pay you twice that amount every year if you stop doing your program. And so they shut me down. It's, a, it's amazing a, how it all comes back to money. True, that is a true hand on the Bible story. And yes, it is all about money. Leave the program, take the cannoli. <laughs> exactly right. So we're, we're talking about lots of different things here, but this narrative, and again, go read this piece. This narrative feels like it's starting to collapse on itself. You're nailing edicts digitally to the walls of the institutions at the end of your piece. Thanks. What's the next phase of this? I, I'm going to say narrative collapse. You tell me if that's a fair assessment or not. What's the next thing? Because it seems like in the last few weeks, like this narrative has definitely shifted in a way it has not shifted in decades. I think that what is happening is that the... It's an emperor's new clothes moment. And it was really sparked by the university president's testimony, um, you know, after October 7th and their horrible, terrible responses, um, to that, to that questioning. And I don't think that stops because I think that so much of the, what the university has been doing, both in a money grubbing sort of way, but also in, as I talk in this note about the, the modern inquisition that is, that are these DEI offices. This is the sort of stuff that sparks a reformation like it did in 1517 for the Catholic church and Martin Luther. It's always a combination of money and of an emperor's new clothes moment where something very public happens and you lose the goodwill that the institution has built up where it's, oh, you mean this is about money, but this is about power. This is, this is about bullshit. Um, 
it makes people angry. And I think there's a wellspring of anger. What I hope that comes next is not turning that anger into purges and frankly, you know, institutional violence and real world violence, like you saw in the, you know, in Europe as a result of the Reformation. My hope, right, is that by putting this out there and suggesting some ways that there's actually reform possible from the inside, that we can make some real changes in this institution that is both has the best people in the world, I think, uh, and also performs this function in our world, like the Catholic Church did in the Middle Ages, that can't be replaced. It has to work. And so we've got to find ways to make it work, not through purges and mass firings and shutting people down and institutions down, uh, but by actually making them return to their original virtues. So uh, that was a long-winded explanation, but it's trying to get at the money-grubbingness of this, to get at the inquisition nature of this, and reform the American university so that it returns to the amazing position that it should rightfully have. So let's jump forward. Let's go to the zeitgeist. Because we're going to talk about narrative here that maybe is even a few steps forward from the Reformation, or maybe not. Let's talk about EVs for a second here. It seems like the electric vehicle narrative is also having a little bit of a moment. Uh, Jack, you want to read off some of the information on this? Yeah, you know, you tweeted about this recently, and you know, this was one of the hottest narratives for a really, really long time. I mean, everyone was behind this thing, and you've talked about how that this is sort of starting to take a turn south. It's starting to die a little bit, and. I thought maybe, could you talk a little bit about like what the life cycle of a narrative is and where EVs are? Because I think that's a good way to put this in context. Sure. So the, the, there are two aspects of this. Uh, you've probably seen these pictures where they talk about any idea and it's got like the, it, and you're kind of graphing out the, how the idea is going and how it's being implemented. And it starts with there are a lot of doubters, and then it gets away, takes a big peak, and it's like the in, inflated expectations, and then it comes down and down into the you call the you know the trough of despair, <laughs> and then it comes back up somewhere in the middle between the trough of despair and the the overinflated expectations for what is realistic, and I think so much of technology follows this path where nobody knows what it is. Then people start to get excited about it. And then the expectations for the technology become incredibly overblown. And then as some flaws and faults in the technology come to light, people start to say, oh, well, maybe it's not so great. And then people start to get down on it. And then people are just saying, oh my God, it's all nonsense. It's all worthless. It troughs, and then it comes back to somewhere in the middle that is a reality. So what I think we're experiencing with the electric vehicle story, and I think is absolutely reflected in reality, is that we're now 
rolling over at those peak of inflated expectations. So in like story terms, we're not at the all is lost moment yet, but we've got, no. we've come off the, the height. Coming. Yeah. We've come off the height of the assumptions and, um, and it's coming, right? Cause you have to, yeah. that's part yeah. of the story's evolution. Like it doesn't mean the story's going away. It's not like you're yep. saying electric vehicles nope. are dead. You're just saying you're really excited. Every watch, did you ever watch the, uh, you remember the movie Overboard? The classic with Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Oh, yeah, if I remember uh, that one. Of course. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we rewatched that for, I don't know. I'm a know big what fan reason. of the entire Goldie Hawn of Raw. Yes, As one must, because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go Wildcats. Um, so, like in that story, you have, you have like the really uncomfortable reality of this person's kidnapped a woman with amnesia just to make him his slave. Yes. And as you see that yes. coming back down, you slowly realize, like, they're actually falling in love and um, uh, I'm blanking on the, the the director's name who did all those great movies and those things. Um, you know, it's going to have a happy ending. You know, this isn't, this isn't a Russian movie. This is right. an American movie. It's going to be, somehow this is going to be okay. That's great. Yeah, that's great. But we have to go through the all is lost moment where it's like, she's realized she's a wealthy, you know, heiress and is back on her yacht speeding away with effectively her husband and her family. And yeah, like that's just the way stories work. So the EV market, we're about to find out like, oh man, Kurt Russell's doing some really dirty stuff and we're not so comfortable. That's it. That's it exactly, Matt. So it's not, it's not that EVs go away, right? It's not that there's not a future where EVs are an important, if not crucial aspect of automobiles. It's that we are just starting on this downward slope of expectations and what EVs can do. And we are so far from the bottom and whatever you want to take from that for, you know, stock price of Tesla or anything, you could, you, you, you figure it out. Right. But what I'm telling you is that in story terms, Matt, you nail, you, you hit the nail on the head. We're, we're on a trajectory and the story has not yet played out in this direction. In terms of like so, e EV prices themselves, not necessarily stock prices. I mean, we, we would expect the narrative to lead price, right? Because do you follow car, car dealership guy on Twitter? Yeah, I do. Yeah. So yeah. like he's had two things recently. He did one, like the cars most selling under MSRP. Almost every one of them was an EV. And then he did the cars with 0% financing. And again, almost every one of them was an EV. So other than the Teslas, I guess, you're starting to see in the market, you're starting to see these prices come down maybe in response to this. Well, you see it in pricing. I mean, Tesla's been very clear about this. They've cut prices. And so the story, the narrative was your Tesla will never lose value. In fact, that was one of, you know, Elon Musk's yay Tesla, you know, claims is that, oh, no, a Tesla is an appreciating asset, not a depreciating asset. Well, that's bullshit, right? You're the the recession, you know, the value of your used Tesla has just gotten crushed over the past year because they've, they've cut prices as they have to, to keep people buying them. You've got to cut prices. Why are you cutting prices? Cause demand is going down. You see that there, you see it in Hertz, you know, Hertz was saying, oh, we're going to be all electric vehicle fleet. And now we're saying, no, we got to unload a big part of this fleet that we bought. 
because the, the, the maintenance and repair costs are just crazy high, you know, much higher than we were anticipating. It doesn't work for us. You saw Ford say, Hey, we're still selling more F-150 lightnings, whatever they call them. But we way overestimated the demand for these guys, way overestimated. So Matt hit the nail on the head. This is the start of the declining story action, not the end. And everyone just needs to be aware of it. Doesn't mean EVs are going away. Tesla's not going to zero, right? Bitcoin's not going to zero, but it means that we are now on the downward slope of narrative world. And we're not close to bottoming out here. We're not even close. It's, it's funny too, how they can twist the story themselves. So, you know, you talked about like Tesla's cutting prices because demand is down. Well, Tesla will tell you that's not what's happening. They're cutting prices because we have better margins than everybody else. We can cut prices. We're going to drive everybody else out of the market effectively because we can sustain lower prices than they can. <laughs> Obviously not correct, but uh, nonetheless, an no, interesting well, no, story. No, that is cor- it is mm-hmm. correct. It, it is true. It is true that Tesla was in a great position of not being a legacy automobile manufacturer with unionized workforce. And so, yes, for a long time, their margins were quite good, especially if you're getting a ton of government subsidies and credits. That'll really help your margins. And as that goes away, then you, you, you have at least the degree of freedom to voluntarily cut your margins, which Tesla has done. It's, it's, so it's not that it was a lot that they had the ability to cut margins. It's not a lie to say that, you know, we're in better shape than other, you know, legacy car manufacturers. It's not a lie, but it's also not the truth. And that's, that's what narrative is all about. It's about, you know, it's, it's a, it's about framing the story in a way that gives more influence to you. Um, it's not about telling lies. It's about shading the truth. It goes back to, uh, what you said in one of those other episodes. It's all true. I forget who it was a quote from, but, uh, this is kind of the same idea. Hemingway. Yeah. Hemingway. He's asking about religion. Which religion is true? It's all true. It's all true. Well, speaking of all true and government subsidies, we've got a tweet of the week. We do. So, so uh, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. <laughs> There's so many types of inflation. Uh, uh, this is my dumb question, Jack. I feel like show show us the tweet. Let's talk about this. It's it kind of makes my head hurt or my ears itch or both. Yeah, so my, my soft landing parade uh, got ended last week, so uh, we're not going to talk about that again. But Ben, you had another tweet, and you know we, we talked about last week, we have a lot more to cover. So uh, you had retweeted Eddie Elfenbein, um, and he said, stocks are at all-time high, retail sales were was above expectations, initial claims was very good, home builder confidence surged, consumer confidence is at its highest level since July 2021. Bro, those aren't the signs of inflation. And, and you wrote on that, and more fiscal stimulus coming from tax cut extensions and infrastructure bill spend. Forget soft landing. This is no landing. And if the feds cuts here, which they probably will, we're back to the races with inflation. Um, so 
I want to ask you about all that. But before I ask you about all that, I want to ask you about inflation because this is a challenging thing. Like most people out there are seeing all kinds of measures of inflation. You're seeing, you know, CPI, core CPI, PCE, course PCE. Yeah. Now you've got yeah. sites like Trueflation yeah. that are, I look today and like 1.87% is the inflation rate, you know, based on Trueflation. Trim, so trim, trimmed mean core three month annualized, right? right. So, which is the other thing. It's not just these measurements. It's like, what slice in time do you take of the measurements? And then it's always X this or X that or X the other thing. It's like, you know, I think for your average, per, even for me, like being in the business, your average person out there, it's hard to figure out like what matters. So I'm just wondering, and I'm sure there's not one metric that matters, but can you just talk about like when you're looking at inflation, like how do you think about it in terms of figuring out what inflation actually is? The short answer to your question is that, that, that nobody knows what inflation is. This, this is the classic example of, you know, the, the, the blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is and they each touch a different part of the elephant. And so they have each have a very different idea of what the elephant is, depending on what part of the body they touched. Very much the same thing here. It's also a case of confusing the map for the territory, which is something that we do in academia. And the Federal Reserve is an academic institution. Right. Let's just, let's just be clear about that. There, there are essentially no real world practitioners there. It's, it, it is, it is, I'm going to say all, right. But there are thousands of PhDs, academic oriented thing that, that is what the Federal Reserve is. It's, it's not an extension school though, right? That is not asking for a friend. No, 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 no. It's not, it's not. What it means to confuse the map for the territory is that you, a map is very useful, right? A map is, you know, necessary to find your way. And so creating a very detailed, a very accurate map by taking lots of readings from the actual territory is, you know, smart, important, it's a good thing to do. What academics do, and I resemble this remark, is that we over time start to believe that the map is the real thing. We, it's not that we forget that it's just a map and that what's really important is the territory, the real world, but we, we're immersed in the map. That is our world is map making. And so when the map becomes your world, you start to think, well, that's that becomes the real world. Where I'm going with this is that we confuse, sometimes intentionally, sometimes just because that's the nature of our work as academics, we, we focus entirely on the map, on these, oh, well, we use you know, three-month annualized trimmed mean PCE as our you know, inflation measurement. Inflation is real world behaviors. Inflation is what corporate management sets for prices. Inflation is what people demand for their work, for their labor. 
That's what inflation is in the real world. It is sitting around the, the corporate board table and talking about, hey, do we raise prices this year? It is having a conversation with yourself or your partner or whoever it is that you're having these conversations with about your own spending and saying, hey, do we, you know, pay up to buy another house or go on this vacation or whatever it is that we're doing? Or do I take another job? These are the real world actions and behaviors that are inflation. That's the territory. And my strong belief is that when you look at all of these indicators of what people do in the real world around setting prices for the goods and services that they sell, for setting prices for the labor that they provide, all of those indications that I see are that inflation is still quite strong. So, look, I've spent decades in map making. I get the tricks of the trade and why you would want to look at one thing or another to try to promote your particular view or, you know, policy. What I'm saying, though, Jack, is that it's all map making. And the real world is where inflation lives. My sense as it comes back here from markets is that the story we're telling ourselves is all the story about maps. And we're ignoring the territory, the real world. And in these situations, the real world always wins on questions like inflation. That's what I think is happening here. I think the Fed is going to cut because I think they are in the world of maps. And I think you can find enough map-making, three-month annualized trimmed PCE blah, blah, blahs to make you say, oh, yeah, we can cut. And my strong view is that the real world will take something like that and say, off to the races, that I've got a green light to increase the prices of my goods and services. I have a green light to demand higher wages for my labor. And that's what inflation truly is. Do you think, do you think the Fed gives in to pressure here? I mean, do you think they're going to cut because they're being pressured to cut? And so they're going to find the map, you know, that, that allows them to justify doing that? Or sure. do you think that's what they really feel about what's going on? It's both. This is sort of, and this is, it's, it's all true. I, I, are they being pressured by the White House, by Wall Street? Absolutely. Right. It's the constant rumbling from Wall Street because they they're being pressured money. from the other maps, though. Right. Like this is the idea. This is all the narratives colliding. Yes or no? In a, in a, no, 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 I don't think that's it. What they're okay. being pressured for is the real world business of Wall Street, which needs cheaper money. What they're being okay. pressured by is the real world interest of the White House, which needs more votes in, the, in November. Right. They're they're. They're pointing to elements of map making as their argument. Yay, trimmed three-month annualized PCE. Yeah, it's 
that's going to be their excuse, their cartoon of what inflation is to get what they want for their real world interest, which is more money and more votes. And Jack asks, you know, are the, is the Fed, are the decision makers being pressured? Do they really believe? It's all true, right? It, that it's, it's, it is a mix of all of the above, and that's what makes human behavior human behavior. So you think the general idea is we will see cuts this year, and we probably will see you know a surge in inflation at some point, you know, maybe, I don't know, after the election or something like that as a result of that? Correct. Okay. I think you see it before the election. Um, yeah, but we'll see. But, that, but that's absolutely what I think. Well, that's absolutely what I think. Yes, the Fed cuts, and yes, that spurs on the real-world inflation that never went away. Just one more thing on this, on, on fiscal policy, because you talked about that. Like, Did we learn anything here on fiscal policy? Because one of the things you're talking about is there's, and a lot of people have talked about, is there's going to be more fiscal policy here you know, that's going to add to inflation. More fiscal stimulus. Yes, yes correct. Did we, sure. did, we, did we learn anything from the fact that we had all this fiscal stimulus, You know, that we went too far, we caused inflation? I mean, the next time we go through, are, 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 are there any lessons from that where they're going to be have more restraint because of that? Or, or is there really nothing you know, they've learned from that? No, the, we've learned a powerful lesson, which is that fiscal stimulus gets you votes. And, and this is the lesson of Clinton and Bush and everyone else. It's the economy, stupid. The lesson here, Jack, is that both parties have zero interest in cutting the deficit. Both parties have every interest in the world of continuing to shovel money out the door. That's the lesson. You know, the lesson is there are zero political consequences for tax cuts, which is the Republican version of this, and zero political consequences for, you know, infrastructure spending, which is the Democratic version of this. There are zero political consequences. So that's what we're going to get. That's what we're going to get. And it's why when the Fed increases the price of money by 5% from zero to five point something percent. That's why we didn't have a, that's why the economy didn't crash. It's why we didn't have a hard land. It's why we're not going to have a soft landing. It's why we're having no landing. That's the lesson, my friend. <laughs> that's the lesson. Well, let's take it to another kind of political map here. Jack, you have a dumb question, and it's about our dear old friend Vivek, who uh, I want to say is at it again, but he's not at it now, but that somehow means he's at it again. It's I a think. blend of the two or yeah, something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this is interesting because, uh, you know, as people who listen, you know, no, I'm probably a pretty centrist guy. I'm not, not a huge Vivek fan, but it seems to me like he may have like played a mass, played his cards massive, like perfectly here. And thinking about like, I was thinking all the way back to the beginning when he started. Like he started, he he made a bunch of controversial statements. He got a bunch of attention around himself. He did a bunch of Mott and Bailey's bend, as, as you would call it. Um, you know, he got a ton of attention, but he avoided, you know, criticizing Donald Trump in any way. Um, he he knew that was bad for the Republican base. He knew that was bad for eventually being, you know, Trump's VP. He played that very well. And then Trump finally decides he's going to go after him. The day after that, Vivek's out of the race. The day after that, Vivek's giving a fiery speech in favor of Trump. I'm thinking like, if there's some chance Vivek is going to be picked as Trump's running mate, he, he just was playing like 14 dimensional chess with what he did here. 
like it worked out really well, but uh, uh, this, is a, this is called the dumb question for a reason because this might actually be a dumb question. I, I don't think he's the VP candidate because I, I think, I don't know who he helps or how he helps uh, Trump in an electoral way. I, I think that, I think my, my personal guess is that, is that Trump goes back to the tried and true approach of picking a VP candidate from a state where it's kind of borderline from you and you need that sort of support. That's, that's just my sense. I also don't think that this was intentional by Vivek. I, I, I think that, and this is what happens when you, you, you go down a path and things get closed off and you say, well, can I squeeze through here or squeeze through there? I think that where it, it doesn't mean you're not being smart about it. Cause I do think he's being smart about it, but I think here's where he's play, his play is. I don't think he's angling to be VP. I think if that happens, it happens. All right, fine. I think what he's angling for is that if Trump is either convicted and goes to jail or Trump is as old as Trump is, Trump is not in good health. If Trump dies, Vivek wants to be the candidate. That's what I think he's angling for. And that's what he's talking about. That did you? Do you hear what his, 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 his shtick right now is they're trying to do away with Trump, that, that they're going to assassinate him. This is the, they, they, they are going to put him in jail. They're going to kill it. That, that, that is what Vivek is all about. He was, he was out in last night and he was saying, this is the problem with Nikki Haley. You know, she's going, she's, you know, it's winter down to two. So when they, you know assassinate Trump, Nikki Haley thinks she's going to be the candidate. He's positioning himself for him to be the candidate, for him to say, oh, I told you so. They did it. I'm going to carry on the legacy. I swear to God, that's how I think he's positioning himself now as the, if something happens to Trump, I'm your guy. It's a pretty wild thing to position yourself for. It's not crazy, right? I, I mean, how many people do you think are positioning themselves for Biden dying? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I mean, tons of people, right? You think. And who would the candidate be? Kamala Harris is going to say, well, of course it's me. And I think she might well be the candidate. And I think though, there are a lot of other people who are saying, I don't think that's right. It's weird because it's, it's like the point of weakness on both those sides. So we have two very, we have two older than average candidates. That's the, the way I'll choose to frame this. And so it's, uh, John Boyd who wrote extensively about the map is not the terrain when he would discuss yeah. OODA loops. So in the fighter yeah. pilot sense, and it was always, if, if you know the map they're using of the reality that I can tell you the strategy to win. And a big part of that is like where the weak points are between the decisions and the things that have to happen and the assessment of the environment. So looking at yeah. two older candidates. Of course death, people are thinking death about is this. A weak point. Of course. You know, there are so many smart people on both the left, but the in DNC and the RNC who were thinking about what happens when Trump slash Biden die. And what I'm saying, Jack, is that the fake is one of those people. 
and he's and he is absolutely specking out that territory for his own. It's crazy. It's to- very smart. But, but I think that's exactly what's going on here. It's crazy. We put ourselves in the position like this. I mean, older than average is being uh, kind over there, Matt. But did, did you guys see that tweet from yeah. that Faber about Bill Clinton the other day? Oh yeah. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the Bill, yeah. Bill Clinton. You tell us, but it's, it's younger. Right. So right. Bill Clinton has not been president for 20 years and he is younger than both candidates that are running this right. time, which is crazy. And he was elected like 30 years, almost 30 years ago or something. And he's younger than both of them. It's, it's pretty amazing. That's right. Bill Clinton is today is younger than Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I mean, that basically sums it up. So, uh, so Matt, it might be time for a little bit of a palate cleanser here. Um, we've talked about the rotten education. We've talked about Vivek. Um, we, we might see something a little more positive. So what you got for us today? Well, we'll see how much more positive this is. But I think for the cultish corner, I want to go to the, the yay in the TM of music. And, and Ben, I'm, I'm ex- extra interested in your feedback on this. I've got this, this note that's been ruminating since our conversation the other week on breaking news. Um, and I think this new essay you just wrote just gave me a whole other layer to this that I'm now getting maybe too excited about. So I've been thinking a lot about when, when I was a teenager in the early 90s and how alternative music became mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about how up to 1993, it was basically like grunge and alternative, which was kind of like, yay, non-glam rock. Uh, yay, the end of Big Hair and Stadium Tours yep. replaced by the new yep. punk. 91 was supposedly the new 77. There was that famous, the year punk broke article. And I'm thinking about it because while well, I was still, I was old enough to participate and be interested in that, but not old enough to be, I didn't have like middle school street cred going yet for So. The real crazy thing that happens is 94 because 94 is when like Green Day and Rancid and the Berkeley punk scene and all this stuff that it blows up. And that's where we go from this like alternative music as this thing and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that to like, it goes from kind of a big deal to a really big deal and maybe epitomized no, no more than the hottest topic of them all. A little company, which by 1996 had gained enough clout to go public and then show up at every mall across suburban America. Hot topic. Hot topic. It, it, that might be the definition of like grubby when I think about music industry stuff. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the very poetically named band, the Dead Kennedys. They have an excellent song, Anarchy for Sale. It's the only thing I yeah. could ever think of looking at that store because it's literally a shirt where you could go and buy Buy, buy capitalism. I can go buy a shirt with an anarchy symbol on it. And that is friggin' madness. That is yay alternative at the TM extreme of like, shouldn't we be robbing this store? Should like something disastrous be happening here? And, and this is what it's making me think of. I, identity at its core is this multifaceted thing. And in the yay phase, we can still sort of start, to, we, we start to lose the multifaceted identities of all the different things that make us us, make an alternative scene unique, make it actually definitionally alternative to mainstream. And the more we start to pick off the multifaceted identity, the more it gets narrowed down, the less we celebrate the alternatives to the mainstream that we're doing. 
that's bad. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just bad to lose counterculture, to lose those things. Yeah. Like, like Hot Topic's great to launch a company and do this stuff, but it, it ends up trying to kill these, this, this whole thing. And I guess the, the upside of this, so Jack, I'm trying to be up, optimistic here because th like, this is what we see in Bitcoin. This is in a way what we see with like DEI losing, completely losing the script. This is what we see in education. We see an identity crisis and that identity crisis only gets resolved when we have an alternative scene again, when we have more yeah. facets to our identity that are broader. How am I doing with this, Ben? How, what are you thinking well, about Well, it's the transformation of something that's authentic into something that is TM in our terminology. It's LARPing, right? It's, it's live action role play as opposed to doing the thing. And I, you know, I, I've written a couple of notes about LARPing and to your point, Matt, for, for me, the, uh, so I was born in 64, right? I remember when the, the, the anarchist cookbook, you know, talking about anarchy, the anarchist cookbook. Don't take it out of the library. You'll go on a list. <laughs> you'll go on a list. I remember, you know, that it was like, oh, he's got a copy of the anarchist cookbook. And, 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 and I now have a copy of the anarchist cookbook, right? As you should. As, as you I should. should. But it was, you know, anarchism as, and I, I actually think this was Bitcoin for a lot of people as well. It's, it's, um, it's safe rebellion. It's like getting a tattoo, but getting a small one on your upper arm so that you can cover it with your, you know, your work clothes, whatever your clothes, you can show it when you want to evince that part of your identity but it's safe in that you can also keep it covered for when you want to. There's so many aspects of this, Matt. You're, you're, you're hitting on something that's so near and dear to my heart. That the only thing I would recommend you to think about is the role of technology in this, mm. because I think that um, MTV was an enormous force within these sort of transformations that you're talking about, about how to make something go mainstream and to, to lose that authenticity. For me, I've been thinking about that. What made the reformation work was the printing press, mm. right? Without the printing press, whatever Luther, Martin Luther was saying about, oh, well, you know, we can all interpret the Bible and it's all right there. If you don't have Bibles that can be printed and distributed, what he's arguing for doesn't make sense. In my case, when I think about the reformation for education, I think that the, the way that, uh, generative AI can be used as a teacher, as a way to disintermediate learning from the intermediaries, the learned intermediaries of the university. I think that's going to change everything mostly for the better. Uh, but I think the technology is a big part of what you're talking about, Matt. Uh, about how different cultural attributes, whether it's grunge or whether it's punk, how they become mainstream, the, the technology, the, the medium by which that's communicated mass to mass communication that shapes things a lot. Interesting. So, so it's not even to think about it. I'm, I'm a, 
anyway, the history of MTV is another, you know, personal fave of mine that, you know, we'll have right, to talk well, about something. We're going to include that in another episode because I think the history of MTV, the proliferation of Nickelodeon and everything that follows is possibly one of the most important technological and cultural touch points that I feel like gets massively skipped over and that it Massive. shaped all of our lives and we yeah. barely talk about it, including I got to watch my three sons and things like that on top of Ren and Stimpy in the same years. I mean, how great is that? How great is that? How great is that? Hey, I got notes, guys. We covered a lot today. And this, this first section of my note is a little bit long, but I think, uh, I think it's worth me getting through this piece. So we defined, Ben, you defined, uh, yay as cheering on the cartoon to mask the perversion and the TM at the end as the business version of the narrative perversion. Yep. Really love that. Yay. College. We talked about the education, including the elite education and its value. We talked about Harvard TM, the extension schools graduate certificates, how uh, not elite, but just money and a certificate kind of means nothing. So whatever starts as virtuous, as you pointed out, th there's a core principle here in many of these things that Absolutely. starts as virtuous, but it can devolve into the crappiest kinds of capitalism. So that's what we're, that's what you're trying to do with this new piece. You're trying to call it as it is. This is an emperor's new clothes moment that's just suddenly upon us with a spark of reformation. So hopefully not anger into purges, but it's a hopeful anger into a divergence, into a new way, into a better function. Did I get the yay and TM part well? <laughs> you did great. All right. Uh, the EV arc, the sheen is off, but we're not at the all is lost moment yet. Gary Marshall, I was trying to remember your name before. You get the shout out as the story architect of so much of our lives too. Uh, and we're going to get there with EVs. And it's not going to end there either. So we don't have to get all doomerism about EVs, but buckle up and maybe uh, take your allocations off of autopilot for now. If you're looking at these things. Inflation. Nobody knows what inflation is. So how you frame it is going to say everything. Because if map is the map is not the terrain, then any inflation stat is just a map. And that does not equal your inflation reality. Maps have gaps. Gaps equal poetry, equal some explanation, which, oh, by the way, a little term, epsilon, I think, is what that means. It is. That was supposed to be a mic drop moment. Now I'm going to pick it back up. <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always. I'm going to channel the battle of wits from Princess Bride today. You always run for VP when a candidate's death is on the line. Thank you for actually teaching us that. <laughs> and then... This, this, this last moment that we ended on here, and I think it's this idea of the transformation of what is authentic into TM and LARPing versus actually doing the thing about how we need to be less of Harvard Extension School certified geniuses and perhaps more Bob Dobbs devoted sub-geniuses who use tech, you like that one, who write to our future, who can teach our future, and most importantly, what we're doing here with Breaking News. This is about finding our future and finding the goodness in it so we can actually bring it into existence, not not the doomer side of things. Thank you so much for joining me today, guys. Thank you. It was Thank great. Thank you, Matt. Well done. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching Breaking News so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, 
The media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com and at practicalquant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter.